Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. Today, we are here with uh, Dr. Magali Armias Tiseira, Associate Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at Pennsylvania State University and Humboldt Fellow at University of Köln, Germany. Hello, Dr. Armias Tiseira, and welcome to our channel. Hello. Thank you for having me here today. Absolutely. And thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your book, The Dictator Novel, Writers and Politics in the Global South, published by Northwestern University Press. And, you know, as as usual for, for New Books Network, you know, I'll start with a very general question to get to know you and your work better. So I was wondering what, um, what you know, how did you come to this project? What got you interested in the dictator novel, you know, um, and also the connection between writers and politics in the Global South? What What drew you to that? Well, this book began, and I should say, you know, the book was published in 2019. Uh, so it's been out in the world for a little while. And in preparation for the conversation today, uh, I went back and reread it. It was a somewhat uncanny, but also very fun activity. So I've been thinking about it, the book itself as being somewhere back in time. And also, to get to your question, its sort of origins as being really quite far back in time. So like many first monographs, uh, it began as a dissertation. Um, a dissertation born out of my interest in thinking together Latin American and African literatures. I did a PhD in comparative literature. I took the directives of the discipline uh, very literally, apparently. But in a more serious vein, I had the good fortune as a PhD student to work with Mary Louise Pratt, uh, who um, herself, uh, in a book from the early 90s, Imperial Eyes, a book about travel writing, was using the frameworks of postcolonial studies to think together Latin America and Africa. And that for me was a sort of early intellectual model and something that I was thinking about as well. What were ways of thinking about the many different kinds of historical links between these two continents? Um, now, I realized in reflecting on this, since I saw a version of this question before, that I actually can't quite remember exactly how I landed on the dictator novel or sort of shared history of dictatorship between the two continents as my focus. But I do recall a kind of one possible narrative of origin for this project was actually um, when I was still in coursework as a PhD student. I first read Amadou Kuruma's uh, En attendant le vote de vête sauvage, or Waiting for the Wild Beast to Vote, which I discussed toward the end of the book. I first read that in a seminar on the African novel, um, probably in my second year of the PhD, and found the book interesting. I didn't end up working on it uh, for my seminar paper, but it had sort of stuck in my mind. And a little bit further down the road, I was in another seminar on theories of the fetish and decided that I wanted to write about that novel and what that novel was doing with both fetish objects, but the sort of dynamics surrounding the fetish more generally. Uh, and the professor for that seminar um, was someone more familiar with Latin American literature. And I remember I went to speak with them about what I wanted to work on for the seminar paper. And I was talking about this novel as a dictator novel. And we both understood what that meant, which is to say, as people familiar with Latin American literature and the tradition of writing about dictatorship in um, Latin American letters, 
we both knew that there was a thing called dictator novel, a category dictator novel, that this novel from Cote d'Ivoire fit into, even though those were not the terms under which it had been sort of originally framed for me in the um, graduate seminar on the African novel where I'd originally encountered it. And that, I think, was an early moment of a kind of spark, um, which I thought, okay, there's a language for talking about this work that is not part of the conversation around this work because it's drawn from another context. And so how could those things maybe be woven together? That was certainly part of the seminar paper that I worked on for that course. And I think that might be, like I said, (laughs) one possible narrative of origin for thinking about the dictator novel and more broadly writing about dictatorship as a kind of comparative axis for thinking across Latin American and African literatures. Um, In terms of the connection between writers and politics in the global South, that came out of sort of building my framework outward. So novels that engage the problem of dictatorship, novels that engage the figure of the dictator specifically, the ways in which that alights on sort of local and also transregional debates about committed literature and so forth. And that larger frame of the global South was actually something I came to toward the end of the dissertation was very key for the transformation of a kind of you know, necessarily small dissertation project into the bigger scope of what became the book eventually. Um, Because I'd been sort of very interested in South-South comparison or Latin America-Africa comparison. And the broader framework of the global South gave me a way of, on the one hand, thinking about the broader implications of the particular comparative axis I was working on. But on the other, it illuminated for me what I would say is one of the specific characteristics of the dictator novels I'm dealing with, which is they're always thinking about dictatorship, yes, as a national problem, let's say, but one that is embedded in global relations of power, right? And that figure of the dictator as being sort of all powerful at home and subservient abroad as being somehow, um, and let's say to varying degrees in the service of foreign powers, there's a kind of thinking about the dynamics of the global system and the unevenness of power in the global system as a fundamental part of the phenomenon of dictatorship in these places that made helped me understand that both the framework of the global South helped me understand that and in reverse that even before the idea of the global South really emerges in, let's say, the last third of the 20th century and into the 21st, already um, writers engaging with the problem of dictatorship in Latin America and Africa were thinking about the dynamics that define the global South in the present. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And it shows, um, of course, the, the origin story of, of the project, but also the the type of thinking that, that brought you from you know, discovering a novel in a class to um, this greater scale, you know, way more uh, intricate, I would say, um, project, right? That is the book manuscript going through the dissertation. And of course, I, as being interested in in Global South and South-South comparisons as well, you know, I I see the ways in which the the framework itself can can provide a space and time to uh, develop these connections and to try them out in different venues and see um, how they can illuminate or or not sometimes um, ways of thinking that... uh, that we can arrive to, and um, you know the the book itself, right? Which is the the focus uh, the focus here um, unfolds over five chapters, accompanied by the introduction and the afterword, and is interested. And I'm quoted quoting uh, in mapping the agglomeration of formal and thematic features that comprise, rather than strictly define, 
the dictator novel across time and place, end of quote. And it does so through a constellated comparison, and I, I'm using your words here, that take into consideration multi-tiered relationships between texts and contexts across time. Well, I'm sure you received this question many times, you know, I will venture and I will ask it again because, you know, I'm curious for our audience um, to um, about the um, uh, the take on the dictator novel and its conceptual usefulness in thinking about the global south and and vice versa as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, I started to get into that in my comments about the framework of the global south um, in my comments just now before this question. Um, so, you know, the ways in which uh, both the sort of critical framework of the global south helped me understand how um, these dictator novels were thinking about not just dictatorship is not just a national problem, but something embedded in global relations of power, but also, right, the ways in which these novels were thinking about global relations of power um, helps understand uh, the global South as a framework in the present. Now, I do. Maybe this is a good place to say, right? That was very helpful, but it then generates other, what I would say, are conceptual methodological problems. Hence my, um, hence my thinking or my proposition of something like constellated comparison. I use, as I noticed in my rereading, um, I use the word juxtaposition a lot. Um, the concept of not so much genre as clearly delimited, but a generic series that sort of transforms um, uh, sort of diachronically and synchronically um, thinking about agglomeration, right? And on the other side of terms such as constellation, agglomeration series would be something like um, teleology, influence, and so forth. Because one of the principal problems or conceptual problems I had in the project was how to talk about the relationship between dictator novels from Latin America, right? It's a tradition or a set of sort of concerns that begin in um, the early to mid 19th century and sort of reach an apex uh, in the context of the Latin American boom in the 1960s and 1970s, although dictator novels continue to be written after that, and dictator novels in African literatures, uh, which really begin to emerge in the late 1970s, 1980s, right? And that um, sort of that, those discontinuous temporalities really invite a narrative of pretty direct influence, right? Um, African writers read Garcia Marquez's Autumn of the Patriarch and write their own dictator novels. And not only is that not the case, um, and I spend a lot of time showing the ways in which that is not the case in the fourth, especially in the fourth chapter of the book, um, but I think more importantly, it is a form of teleology for comparative thinking um, that I am resistant to, <laughs> that, that, you know, but, but, but more pointedly put that I reject, right? The idea of kind of secondariness built into that kind of framework, um, both discounts what might be, you know, what I call at some point the sort of local origins for African dictator novels. Um, but it's also a way of thinking um, about uh, literature and literary traditions at the macro scale that can't conceive of more complicated dynamics like contemporary, like ideas happening contemporaneously that aren't connected to each other, or 
um, more nuanced understandings for what the conversations across different contexts might look like. You know, that idea that someone reads Garcia Marquez's um, Out of the Patriarch and decides to write their own dictator novel is, is such a flat understanding of of influence or as influence of what could be a much wider range of complex intertextual relations, right? Including parody, satire, misuse, misquotation, and so forth that um, get at the ways in which trans-regional exchange influence and conversations, I think, actually take place. Um, so that was one of the kind of hard things um, about working with this framework of the global south is it invites a kind of bringing together it permits or it facilitates a kind of bringing together of far-flung places and contexts and and sometimes even times um but then bringing back in right those discordances deviations differences um unevenness uh within the global south or within the kind of comparative axes of the global south opens up is really vital and that those were kind of the most complicated, but also most generative steps of working on this project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to say, and, you know, this is just a, a comment that hopefully will get me into a question about chapter one. But, you know, I, I was just thinking as I was reading the book and, you know, thinking about all the, the other, um, you know, the, the the novels themselves that the the chapter and the introduction that deal with, with what you, you just mentioned, they are so clearly and so wonderfully written that you know it, it made the, it made the the just thinking about questions um easy and you know just wanted i hope the audience will feel the same and in, in saying i really want to read this book now and um just to to accompany the the thinking further of course each each one of us in their their own way um and um just to be very um you know very uh just have the the question pointed uh, in chapter one entitled "Writing Aporia: Aesthetics and Politics in the Dictator Novel of the Global South." Um, you know, here here's the heavy lifting in terms of establishing the critical questions uh, and the basis for comparison in the book. And you already mentioned, you know, some some ways in which that is done. But I wanted to hear more about the aporia at the heart of the writing about dictators and how it can or or it does, it it influences the formal dimensions of the novel's political intentions. Mm -hmm. You know, of the, since I saw previews of these questions, um, this question was the one that was, uh, has taken me the most time to get my head around. I'm looking at my own notes and I just have a catalog of relevant page numbers, um, (laughs) just in terms of sharing some of this process. Um, Let's see. So I think, the more useful way of coming at this idea of the kind of aporia at the heart of writing about the dictator, right? Or what I refer to um, at other points in the course of chapter one is the sort of aporia or paradox of the dictator's vulgarity um, gets me um, to some of the challenges of engaging with writing about dictatorship more broadly, but really the dictator novel specifically, and the distinction I'm making here, right, is not works where dictatorship is a kind of background condition, but where the dictator appears as a character in the text up to and including focalization of the narrative through parts of the narrative, at least through the dictator, right? So so the dictator is this sort of central figure, um, even if there might be other sort of narrative strands or important plot lines. Now, um, 
the reason why this, this sort of idea of the kind of a poor of the dictator's vulgarity is so important to me is sort of on first glance at first blush, or on the one hand, let's say, <clears throat> the work of the dictator novel would seem to be very straightforward. Um, and in fact, the spirit of so much writing about cultural production about dictators is rather straightforward, right? It's a work of denunciation, a cataloging of the dictator's crimes, a finding of a way to talk about what cannot be talked about in sort of official venues, right, that are censoring a conversation about what's actually going on, so on and so forth. But I found so interesting um, in engaging with, you know, novels about um, dictators across place and time was the works themselves don't actually seem to fit those purposes very well. And that's for a range of reasons that vary across context, whether it's because they're, um, you know, their historical referent is actually um, a mix because they are looking back to dictatorships of a previous era rather than talking about a dictator in this moment, whether they're published outside of the context about which they're written, whether they're published long after um, the dictatorship about which they were written, so on and so forth. So as a kind of work of denunciation that would be quote unquote informing a public, um, that kind of, um, locational as much as of um, temporal asynchronicity would seem to be a kind of problem, right, for the idea of what we think the dictator novel does. Another point, and this was interesting, right, in terms of paying attention to how authors of dictator novels themselves tended to talk about their work um, in interviews, in essays, also in personal letters, there's an archival component to the book as well, would be that they themselves tend to return to this idea of the kind of limitations of denunciation, if that is in fact the work of writing about the dictator, which is to say, and here this is a phrase from Googie, right? Like the, I'm really quite, quite distantly paraphrasing Googie here, but essentially the people living under dictatorship might have at least some inkling about what is wrong about dictatorship, right? Um, it's not news for those in fact living under the dictator. Now, um, I think we can sort of nuance that in a whole bunch of ways, but I, you know, I, I took that as a sort of instructive lesson and that opened for me the idea like, okay, what is it that the dictator novel is doing then, right? What are some of the problems that are actually being um, engaged or staged or, or thought through in the context of these works? So that was kind of one, right? A sort of first door that opens. A sort of further door that opened, particularly as I worked through the project, and actually here this might come up again in our conversation about chapter two, was the term the the extent to which the terms in which the dictator and the dictator's bad actions were talked about themselves deserved to be interrogated, right? And here I'm thinking about common tropes of the representation of the dictator as um, barbaric, illiterate, given to all forms of excess. And, and importantly, sexual access and so on, and the extent to which those tropes of the representation of the dictator were often reinforcing um, existing stereotype of the particular context from which these works were emerging. This is a sort of critique that comes up in conversations surrounding these texts as well. Right, so that to denounce the dictator as vulgar, just to use an umbrella term, is maybe not very effective, if the dictator novel is meant to denounce, it's not very informative for those already familiar with the dictator. And in fact, may contain within it a, a set of assumptions that themselves deserve to be interrogated. All right. So here was the kind of beginning of a sort of reading against the grain um, 
uh, of the, I'm not saying the dictator is not that bad. What I'm saying is to think critically about the terms in which the dictators were being criticized in these novels. And here, the work of Ashibembe um, uh, in, well, it, it's a, it's a, an essay um, that undergoes sort of several versions before it ends up as a chapter in his book, The Aesthetics of Vulgarity. The work of Ashibembe here was really incredibly useful um, because he's thinking about the vulgarity of the dictator, not simply as something that can be used as, as sort of weaponized as denunciation, but he's sort of thinking precisely about how that is not sufficient because the dictator is explicitly vulgar, but also because that vulgarity is part of the dictator's appeal, right? Um, I think this is familiar from many, um, many contexts of autocratic rulership, um, of, of um, autocratic, uh, of autocratic, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the word. <laughs> but from, from many, from many autocratic contexts or contexts um, of leaders who are, let's say, autocratic curious, um, right? And so, Bimbe thinks in much more, many more complex ways about the kind of structure of desire and the sort of feedback loop between ruler and ruled around vulgarity. And that gave me a different way of thinking about what happens when there is recourse to the tropes of vulgarity in the dictator novel, what is being named or not named. In fact, what is being pointed to but cannot be named. And there, there's a whole set of concerns about the political efficacy of literature, about the relationship between writing and politics and so forth. And that's really when my analysis opened up, right? So that apparent aporia, impasse, place of paradox is actually where the analysis goes in another direction from that kind of first read of the bad things a dictator does, the problems of dictatorship to thinking about what is being, what is actually being talked about or thought through indirectly as much as directly when a writer decides to write about the dictator as a figure. Fascinating. And uh, I think it's, it's so such a useful way to to you know, describe how one one door led to another door, you know, uh, the, the metaphorical door in, in thinking, and how um, you know, stating what you know, people under under such um, such regimes would already know um, would would have so much weight to it in terms of aesthetics, in terms of its political implications, and how that. Uh, speaks to uh, literature's um, own stance in such regimes, but also, of course, in larger contexts. Um, and, you know, speaking of, of, of literature, and I'm trying to make the bridge to chapter two, uh, entitled Tabula Rasa, Juan Manuel de Rosas, and the Emergence of the Dictator as a Literary Figure. Um, I think here we, we, we can look, and the chapter, of course, proposes... Um, and interrogates tropes uh, for the literary history of the dictator novel in Latin America. And um, here's the, the archive, right, that, that we, we draw from. And, you know, I'm interested in, in the, the archives, the, um, uh, what, what you found there to be the most interesting for the book, um, you know, for, for your projects in general, or, you know, how the discoveries have shaped your thinking and just a few details, <laughs> you know, for, for the curious audience as well. Yeah, so this chapter, um, well, you know, all the chapters are fun to write in their own ways. But this was um, 
this was the first chapter of the dissertation, which had originally only really engaged with Domingo Facino Sarmiento's Facundo, that I rewrote for the book, right? And and the discussion of Facundo is a very small part of that chapter. In the end, I go much bigger because what it becomes is a case study of the sort of range of textual cultures and forms of representation of Juan Manuel de Rosas in mid-19th century Argentina, right? And, and that took me from... Uh, an incredibly canonical text, Sarmiento's Facundo, to thinking about the sort of broader conversations of which it was a part um, and directly and indirectly engaged with. Sarmiento's Facundo is sort of cited in, in criticism of the Latin American dictator novel. It's sort of cited as a, as a kind of a point of origin. The work itself is really generically hybrid. It's not properly a novel. It's often read as a novel in terms of its discursive strategies, um, but it's often cited as a point of origin, right? But it's actually, a, you know, it's a point amongst many points in a moment. And that was really the kind of transformation between how I was thinking in the dissertation and then in this particular case study for the book. And where that took me, you know, um, Domingo Faustino Sarmiento um, writes this work that is ostensibly a biography of a regional strongman, Caudillo, um, who is assassinated by Juan Manuel de Rosas in the process of Rosas taking, who was himself a regional caudillo, taking control of Argentina as a whole. Um, it's sort of a three-part work that has a kind of meditation on Argentina, then the biography of, um, of Facundo Quiroga, and then um, this sort of essay, political essay that engages more directly with Rosas. Um what this generically hybrid text is doing is actually drawing on tropes and conversations that were happening across genres. Sarmiento goes on to be president of Argentina, right? He is part of the generation of 1837, this kind of emergent generation of young uh, liberal uh, federalist um, influenced by European romanticism thinkers who are imagining a new nation. Right, imagining a new nation sort of in the wake of the wars that follow uh, its independence from Spain. And um, the word I haven't said yet, right, is this is an elite context. It's in a conversation amongst elites who have a very particular vision for the nation that is in opposition to the vision for the nation that Rosas represents. But it's not even just a question of two competing visions. There are also the populations of these urban proletariat and rural proletariat over which each claim some kind of control and certainly desires that they have for what those populations will do or be, and also populations of indigenous people, right? And um, as I sort of drilled down and started to look at the broader textual cultures surrounding Rosas, what emerged was, you know, a much wider range of genres, pamphlets, poems, um, also, the relationship between writing about Rosas and what was then, in that period of the 19th century, the emergent genre of the gauchesca or the genre about gauchos, so writing about rural life that becomes kind of idealized and really uh, consolidated as a genre by the end of the century when a lot of those rural lifeways are effectively disappeared, um, not unlike cowboys in North America, Um and thinking about the kind of broader archives there. So you have a lot of, you also have the explosion of textual cultures in the mid 19th century, right? So these poems are being published in pamphlets, newspapers, um, and so forth. And what emerged was, right, if we think about a kind of 
pro-Rosas camp and an anti-Rosas camp, right? So already I was thinking about writing in support of the dictator, not just anti-dictator work. Within those camps, there's also divisions that we could, speaking broadly, talk about as divisions of class. So that in the pro-Rosas camp, what you have right, in the sort of, let's say, elite and non-elite spaces are incredibly different versions of Rosas that emerge and incredibly different values attached to the support of Rosas that emerge. And the same is true on the anti-Rosas side, right? And so what comes out of that is, right, all of these Rosases are equally real, right? It's a whole range of ways of talking about the leader or the dictator, depending on what side you're on, and a whole range of values and tropes that filter into the literary language for talking about the dictator over the course of the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Like we can recognize them. It's not exactly a point of origin, but looking at the kind of emergence of these tropes in this very particular moment also makes possible a critical reading, right? So the ideas around gender, the ideas about race and racialized bodies that sort of stick to some of the tropes we're talking about, the barbarity of the dictator, are incredibly important for reading critically the representation of the dictator in the 20th century in Latin America, but also in Africa. Um, and so that this was a space in which I, I learned a lot about that kind of reading against the grain that I was talking about before as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it becomes, um, it becomes clearer in a way, um, right? The, um, the, the, when, when we mentioned constellated comparisons at the beginning of the, the podcast and, you know, the, the more we get into to the details and the chapters, right, of the book, the, the ways of comparison and how these, you know, implications behind implications and, you know, uh, paradoxes upon other metaphors and, and all, all the work that is, is done there, it become the constellation starts to become clearer, but also extremely exciting to discover, um, in my opinion. And I think as we, we get to, to the boom, right, the Latin American boom, and um, we, we talk about this in chapter three, um, I think um, the the connections right between um, Latin America and Africa start to become even more urgent to to discuss. Um, and um, so chapter three, Fathers of the Fatherland, Writing Politics and Literary Form at the End of the Latin American Boom, um, takes us closer to, to the present moment. So, you know, we're talking about the 60s and the 70s. And um, there's a change in genre. And I was curious about that and the key issues um, and how they inform the afterlife of the American, uh, Latin American boom. Hmm. Can I ask you a little bit more about the change in genre? <laughs> um, sure, you can. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about right uh, how at the beginning we started with, um, you know, the novel and the dictator novel, not a particular genre, not being itself a mm-hmm. genre, but having this generic um, type of characteristics where we could, um, you know, extend it over a period of time, both synchronic and um, asynchronous in terms of writing. Um, but then if we extend it to, let's say, Africa or to other parts of, of the world, um, then it can help illuminate the relation between literature and, say, um, structures of power. Um, so here in the change in genre, I'm thinking more of this, um, the generic qualities of, of the novel um, and whether, you know, and 
uh, kind of the, the chapter demonstrates it, um, how um, our conceptualization of genre as, you know, when we think novel or when we think short story, like how that factored in or not um, in, in the, the, the end of the Latin American boom and, you know, how writing and politics um, had something to do in literary with literary form or not, or yes, or how, how the how did the constellation function there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> spinning that out a little bit. It's helped me think about how to answer this because something I'm, I'm articulating for myself, actually in the rereading, but also, but also in listening to you in, in talking about the project with you here in the context of this recording that I, I wouldn't have put in this way before is I'm realizing how much of the sort of first well, of chapters two and three, the chapters that focus on Latin America are to some extent bound by the recognized um, sort of key notes of the history of the dictator novel in Latin America, right? To, to, to write about Sarmiento's Facundo, to write about the dictator novels that come at the end of the Latin American boom. These are sort of the... <laughs> stations of the cross, so to speak, of the tradition in Latin American letters. And to some extent, I have followed it, right? And I'm trying to kind of open it up in new ways, informed by my engagement with African dictator novels. So um, in some way, my answer to your question is, <laughs> because I had to write, this was a place I had to go, but but let me give that, let me give that more nuance. So there's this moment um, between uh, 1974 and 1975, where um, three dictator novels are published by, uh, I'm just going to double check those dates, yeah, 1974 and 1975, when three dictator novels um, are published in very close succession by, you know, three prominent writers of the Latin American boom, which is this moment where Latin American literature kind of achieves unprecedented international acclaim. Uh, It's a to be very clear, like the term boom has to be said with quotation marks around it or prefaced with the phrase so-called, um, particularly within the study of Latin American literature. But there's this moment where these three dictator novels by, let's say, big writers um, come out in quick succession. Um, this, on the one hand, causes a kind of <laughs> concordant boom in criticism of the Latin American dictator novel, a sort of moment where critics are like, this is important and sort of go back. And there's a lot of scholarship of Latin American writing of, um, of Latin American writing about dictatorship and the dictator specifically that comes in the wake of the publication of these novels. Right. So it generates a lot of the critical sort of bibliography on this topic. And therefore it's, it, it is a starting point or end point. Um, but also it was a sort of point of interest. Right. And for many years, there's this kind of, rumor or story, um, and there's slightly different versions of the rumor or story, that the reason that these novels are sort of are written and come out at about the same time is because, well, one version of the story would be that these writers and other boom writers made a bet about who could write the best novel about a Latin American dictator, or that they had a project to do it together, or something. And one of the things I did in the course of my research for, and it really was for the book and not the dissertation, and that had to do with access to archives and access that was... Um, that became possible um, as as certain collections that had been closed to researchers were opened, um, either because enough time had passed or because the people whose papers they were um, passed away. Um, so quite sincerely, this portion of the project would not have been possible 
um, had Carlos Fuentes and Garcia Marquez not passed in the interim between my dissertation and the book, right? Just to say something about the coincidences that make possible certain kinds of research projects. Um, so, um, I was able to go into the archives and sort of research. Um, there's a moment where I think Fuentes mentions in an essay that there had been a kind of planned project. So it wasn't a bet. It was a planned project where a bunch of uh, writers sort of participating in or connected with the Latin American boom were each going to write a short text about a Latin American dictator. But the project never happened, never came to fruition. And I spent quite a bit of time in a, a few archives going through writers' correspondence to figure out, well, what was the project? What were they planning to do? What conversations were they having around it? I mean, my first question was, why didn't it happen? But it ended up being the least interesting question. Um, sometimes people get busy and things don't happen. Um, and much more interesting were the conversations that people were having about the project as they were trying to figure out what it could be. And that really informs my reading of the novels. Um, to get to your question of sort of why novels, though, more specifically, I mean, it has to do with the larger context of the Latin American literary boom and the kind of predominance of the novel and of big novels, let's say big, uh, formerly experimental novels of the Latin American Nueva Novela, um, derived from the French Nouveau Roman, or the boom novel, as it gets called, um, which includes something like the narrative strategies of magical realism, but is much bigger than that, the kinds of experimentation I'm talking about. So these are all writers writing novels, right? And then they take up the topic in the original project that never came to fruition, which, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned yet. It's also the, the title of the chapter, Fathers of the Fatherlands. I mean, it had the apparently absolutely unironic name Los Padres de las Patrias, right? Making a competing pair between writer and dictator. Very generative for my thinking, right? So big writer takes on a historical dictator from their home country and they were meant to write short texts. And I will say, um, to answer your question in a way that I sort of perhaps don't touch on in the chapter, I, I do think some one lesson learned from my reading of the correspondence in the archives that the... the a short text, ideally fictional, although it's unclear. Some people thought they needed to write essays. Um, the short text is not enough. <laughs> it's not big enough. Um, that these needed to be novels in all the capaciousness that the novel form allows, but also novels in terms of its narrative strategies, including you know things like focalization, um, heteroglossia, so on and so forth. Um, certainly for the particular writers, um, that I discuss in that chapter, Garcia Marquez, Alejo Carpentier, and Augusto Robastos, um, their novels aren't, you know, they're not, the novels are not just bigger than the short story. They are long novels. Um, dictator novels tend to run long. Um, and I think that's a reflection in the individual cases of the many different shapes that the projects took. And I talk about the different shapes that Garcia Marquez's Autumn of the Patriarch took over a period of about 12, 15 years when he was working as he was working on it. Um, but also of the kind of difficulty of getting at both the dictator as a figure to be thought about and thought through quite literally, um, as well as thinking about the kind of um, conditions surrounding the dictator as well right and you know i think that's um the, the conditions I'm, I'm stuck on the conditions of, of writing a little bit um and um yeah i just I found it fascinating and how the 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 smaller well the the incipient type of of writing 
you know, informed or not uh, the project itself and, um, you know, the, the lives and afterlives of, of, of these this type of, of writing um and i don't i think the the you know chapter four in the title um right uh, misadventures right would be um it is misaventuras the polit- politics and poetics of the dictator novel in the african post post-colony but i kind of took it um you know literally with this misadventure in terms of, of attempting to write about the the dictator novel and i think that's, there might be a question that I might ask later, um, but, uh, um, you know, just um, this adventure and misadventure uh, in also um, establishing connections. And, and here with chapter four, um, you know, we the, the attention is directed to a new geographical location, namely Western Central Africa. And the, the chapter analyzes two important aspects, the local intellectual origins of the dictator novel, as well as the ways in which the novel as a genre has changed. Um, and, you know, um, I was just curious about um, more details about the networked connection between Latin America and Western Central Africa and about how the dictator novel evolved through them. And I think here's where the misadventure part in my previous uh, comment comes in, um, you know, how these uh, these connections uh, were created, not created, created for just a period of time. You know, how, how did that work? Yeah, so the connections, the connections are absolutely there. Um, it sort of links back to some of my earlier comments about how I wanted to think about the relationship between the dictator novel and Latin America and Africa, that I, you know, the temptation to think about the dictator novel is traveling from Latin America to Africa and my, well, that is both imprecise, but it also something that I was resistant to. At the same time, you know, I'll start answering your question by acknowledging that, yes, absolutely, Um writers and thinkers throughout the African continent, in West Africa, and also particularly in in Central Africa and the Congo, were reading their Latin American contemporaries and looking at what they were doing and taking inspiration from it. But the sort of, and this is where, right, the the sort of capaciousness of Mesaventure as a title for the chapter, which I actually take from the title of a chapter in Fennel's Wretched of the Earth. Um, It's sometimes translated as pitfalls, but it has a kind of bigger meaning about that refers to kind of unexpected turns or unexpected outcomes, right? It would seem to translate as misadventures, but that also has a slightly more negative uh, connotation. There's more capaciousness in the term that's possible. Um, But there we get that kind of capaciousness of the different forms of that kind of influence. influence. Again, I think influence is too strong a word, that kind of sort of engagement with what is happening elsewhere can take and the kinds of forms that that sort of inspiration, borrowing and really recoding can take. So there was a way into this chapter and the chapter kind of tells two stories. Um, It's the same story from very different angles with slightly different claims and I'm juxtaposing them Um, because there is one story I could tell that is much more about those that sort of direct exchange influence and so on for which there are moments in particular novels where you can see that there's a playing with the Latin American reference, the most explicit of which, which, you know, amuses me to no end, is in fact a herniated scrotum, um, which if you needed a sort of hook to hang your comparison on, I suppose I suppose that would be it. Um, but not wanting to ground the entire project on that. More importantly, I was very aware as I was... Uh, I'm sorry, I should take a step back and say, right, the 
dictator novel as a kind of tradition across linguistic and regional contexts within the African continents had, has not really been theorized as a tradition, right? There's not a beginning point and there's not a sequence and there's sort of lots of texts that might fall within it, but um, there is a much smaller body of work um, and there was very little uh, work um, on anything that we could call the African dictator novel when I began working on this project. There were really just a few chapters and articles of scholars recognizing some kind of morphological analogy to dictator novels in Latin America and sort of casting that more work could be done along these lines. So I was putting together the corpus for these chapters on uh, the dictator novel in African literatures in a way that I was not putting together the corpus um, for the chapters on Latin America. Right. So in putting together that corpus, I I could find those points of contact um, and I had more nuanced things to say about them. But I also noticed that they're equally, if not more important, was the ways in which the dictator becomes a focus as the result of a kind of consolidation of the concerns and tropes of the broader tradition of the literature of political disillusionment that comes, which is a sort of broad category, but it's the kind of writing and thinking that comes in the wake of independence as there is a kind of disillusionment. This is tied to some of the arguments that Fanon is making in his chapter on the misaventure of independence in the, rich, in the wretched of the earth. Um, that this kind of broader body of writing, you see a kind of condensation of, or a sort of, um, yeah, condensation of some of its critical threads that eventually result in what we would call the dictator novel, right, in in various contexts on the African continent. And so what I'm doing there is looking at a series of works by Chinua Achebe on the one hand and Usman Semben on the other and seeing how they progress from, you know, and in different ways. They have very different arguments um, that they're making also, dealing with Senegal and Nigeria, respectively, um, how they progress from this sort of broader sense of disillusionment to a focus on the dictator as a figure um, in works that span from the 1960s to the 1980s. As complement to that, there absolutely exists um, novels about dictators that are, you know, in some sense aware of and referencing, I mentioned, and I will unfortunately repeat, the herniated scrotum that is, um, a recognizable feature of the dictator in Garcia Marquez is the autumn of the patriarch and, and is then present in um, Sonila Boutonzi's L'état tonteux or the, um, the shameful state uh, where that dictator also has a much larger herniated scrotum than in fact at certain points in the novel is made to speak, right? So we've got parody, exaggeration and so forth that's happening there in the reference. Um, but even with that said, right, I, I think... Um, Something like Aminata Sofal's L'Expert de la Nation doesn't have um, a writer from Senegal, a woman writer from Senegal, you know, the, the, it's not, there, there isn't a sort of clear reference to her Latin American contemporaries. Instead, she's taking things in a completely different direction by engaging in this kind of autobiographical mode and the ways in which both the novel itself is written and how she talks about it. And so what I kept seeing in looking at this roughly contemporaneous sort of moment, the boom dictator novels in Latin America in the 70s, and then African writing about political disillusionment and then dictatorship over the course of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
was for every moment where I might see some kind of contact, there were also just other things happening and other things being brought to bear that were opening up the generic series of the dictator novel in new ways. And in fact, and I'll sort of pause here, so I'm not quite sure if I've properly answered your question, but in fact, what really happened over the course of the project was those new ways in which these African writers were opening up the generic series of the dictator novel fundamentally changed my reading of the Latin American works. So if I began the project taking this kind of Latin American framework and being like, oh, what African things look like it, right, which is a kind of gesture that was present also in the existing criticism. Uh, actually, as a project evolved, let's say the current, the electricity flowed much more often in the other direction, which is how can I read this established work for which there is an established critical archive in a new way that is informed by these novels emerging from diverse African contexts. And I think here you're, you know, I think it's a, it's a very nice emphasis of, um, you know, what you said at the beginning um, of not, <coughs> I'm sorry, um, of not subordinating um one um one tradition to another through points of connection or comparison and having the the electricity as you you, you mentioned flowing in different directions sometimes vice versa sometimes you know differently than what you planned um, and i think it's it's a very important point of of um, analysis but also of methodology mm-hmm. yeah for me it's really um it helped me read much more critically and in fact be less dismissive of some of the some of the some of the dynamics that were unfolding in those Latin American dictator novels of the boom. Um, so while my reading was very much informed by the archival work I did, I also it helped me think critically about what was and was not present, for example, in a novel like Autumn of the Patriarch, and to read much more closely for moments of self-criticism or self-reflexivity than I think I would have if I were just reading it out of the Latin American literary and critical traditions. Um, yeah, yeah. Great. Stop there. That, that, yeah, that's uh, that, that's fascinating. And, you know, in the, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll move on with chapter five, but I do have more questions for, you know, more podcasts, I hope. Um in uh, so chapter five, the dictator in the Corpolony, the dictator novel in the time of transition, and that takes us to the post Cold War period. And you know, I, I'll I'll just take a line right off the book, and I'll ask you by quoting: What are the possible limits and futures of the dictator novel at the cusp of the twenty first century? End of quote. So that moment of of transition of you know end of Cold War, um, you know what what happens there. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens, the answer to what happens has a couple of different realms, right? So we have the end of the Cold War in Latin America, as much as Africa, that these this larger sort of geopolitical conflict had been um, a sort of scaffolding for dictatorships on the continent, right? Whether it was um, by being aligned with uh, one side or the other, um, or formally non-aligned and playing the two sides off each other. And once those conditions disappear, um, many dictatorships, uh, dictators face crisis, right? How how do you keep the business going? And also 
larger transformations in the global economic system, right? The shift to um, a much more consolidated form of neoliberal globalization. These things are happening obviously before 89 to 91, but they really reach their peak in the 90s. And there's a lot of talk about transition and those transitions are, you know, economic as much as political. Okay. <laughs> and what's happening to the dictator novel, right? Because in this chapter, I deal with dictator novels by writers who are, you know, of the same generation as many of the writers that I'm writing about in the chapter before. So there's not been a kind of fundamental shift in terms of the, the writers, but there has been a shift in terms of geopolitical circumstances and what the writers are doing with the dictator novel, which is um, by writing about what we could broadly call Cold War era dictators who are in a period of crisis in this moment of larger global transition. Um, they are also thinking about what the dictator novel can do in this different moment. Um, and here's where I'm, I'm sort of coming to the question, right? So, and here I talk about uh, Gugi Wationgo's Wizard of the Crow and Amadou Kuruma's Waiting for the Wild Beast to Vote, which I mentioned much earlier. You know, and the novels both kind of reflect on the condition of transition, in fact, often pointing out that the dynamics of the 1990s, the push toward neoliberal economic policies, structural adjustment, and so on, long preceded the end of the Cold War, right? The first structural adjustment policies, I believe, are implemented in Senegal beginning in 1979 by an agreement with the World Bank. Um, so, you know, it's not exactly new, and that's part of what they're thinking about. And yet these dictators are in crisis, and they're having to figure out how to stay in power. In fact, many of them managed to. Um but also, what is the dictator novel doing? And here, I think, and this is jumping toward the end of the chapter, I think Kuruma on the one hand and Gugi on the other go in slightly different directions. I mean, they are thinking about, as always, right, the sort of global relations of power within which these dictatorships in individual, in each case, fictionalized nations are embedded. But Kuruma is thinking a lot about what it even means to write about dictatorship and the sort of crimes of the dictator. This happens at sort of formal levels in terms of the genres he's playing with. Um, it also happens, there's a kind of staging of a truth commission toward the end of the novel that's important. And Gugi, so so it's a kind of turning inward and it's, it's a contemplation about possible futures, which is where that sort of novel um, sort of pauses at its end, let's say. In the case of Gugi and Wizard of the Crow, there's a kind of gesture outward toward um, transnational and transregional um, forms of organizing against sort of globalized powers of oppression. So the term corpolony from the um, chapter's title comes from the book and it's a, a minister goes to meet with uh, the leaders of the Global Bank, which is a novel's analog for the World Bank that's like proposing this new policy. It's like, it's not colonialism. It's not neocolonialism. It's this new thing, corporolonialism. This is our future, right? It's like a corporate colony. It's our new thing. And you, the dictator, get to be our kind of like man on the ground. Um, you know, and and so at the end of the novel, there's a kind of sense of a sort of possibility for a resistant transregional organizing against corporonialism that has to be, right, transregional. Um, it has to be thinking in terms of horizontal uh, solidarities and so forth, right? So there's an opening toward, you know, this idea of the global south as a resistant consciousness would be a place where I end. Where does that leave the dictator novel? <laughs> <laughs> right. And this is where... Um, 
and you know, and these are novels, um, Kuruma's novels from the late nineties, uh, Googie's novel is published in the mid two thousands and three volumes. Um, you know, where does that leave us now? <laughs> I mean, one thing I note at several points in the book is that dictator novels sort of continue to be written. Um, this is definitely true in Latin America. And they continue to be written often out of step with the moment they're in. So in the context of the sort of Latin American um, boom dictator novels, you get a novel by a, a, a writer of a slightly um, older generation, Arturo Uslar Pietri, who also writes a dictator novel in that period that's very much in the style of a previous moment. And in an analogous way, Mario Vargas Llosa, the Peruvian writer who's also part of the boom generation, writes his big dictator novel in the year 2000, um, The Feast of the Goat, La, La Fiesta del Chivo. Right. And so you do have these ones that are kind of published sort of slightly out of moment. This is why our kind of hard periodization is only ever a heuristic and not a hard rule for how we think about literary history. So, you know, I think the dictator novel continues. There's been a lot of writing, um, especially in the wake of the Arab Spring now over a decade ago about the dictatorships in um, Swana, really, but um, in the Middle East and North Africa um, that has emerged, has been published, that has been translated and much more widely circulated internationally. And so, you know, the dictator novel continues to exist. What work is it doing in the present, in this moment, in the 21st century? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I think there's a few reasons why I don't have an answer. I think some of it has to do with having finished this project and stepped away from it. Um, some of it has to do with the larger geopolitical moment in which I finished this project um, as a scholar uh, living and working in the United States, um, having finished the first draft of this manuscript in 2016, 2017, um, uh, that, and also in a, having finished this book in a context that was saturated with media about dictatorships, I'm thinking about the Sasha Baron Cohen film about Gaddafi. Uh, I think it was just called The Dictator, right? This, this kind of saturation of um, the kind of recourse to the trope of what we could broadly call the global South dictator as a way of talking about indirectly and often very directly. I'm thinking of the Trevor Noah, Trump is an African dictator segment that came out well in advance of the election in 2016 as a way of talking about politics in the United States. And I would say more broadly, right, the, the, the global North, um, that troubles me. <laughs> so if one problem... Um, of, of the dictator novel from Latin America or Africa or, you know, other places in the global South is the, the ways in which it might play into stereotypes about those regions. We see those same kind of stereotypes at work as at work mobilized as, you know, ideally as critique, but most often as mere insult. Um, and I think it's not just problematic because of the broadly speaking racism involved in um, but but also because I think it forecloses the kind of thorough analysis that's actually needed about the broader turn to authoritarianism um, in well globally, but 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 specifically in, in in Europe and North America. And so, what can the dictator novel do in that context? I don't I don't know. I'm afraid that in some ways it can affirm this dynamic that I'm describing here that I find so troubling. Um, I've certainly, in the wake of the book being pub being published, been asked to have things to say about this, um, which I did not want to. <laughs> For sure, I have done sparingly, and yeah. which you know I was careful of because I was uh, not yet a naturalized immigrant in the United States. Um, <laughs> you know, I think a more positive spin on this answer would be: I think there's probably 
a lot for the dictator novel to do, but it is now itself truly in a time of transition, right? So if the dictator novels I talk about in chapter five of the book were dealing with a moment of global transition, I think the genre itself is in some some kind of um, um, transition or transformation. And I'm curious to see what it will do. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, just to to add to, to the difficulty of, you know, seeing how or what it does in the present moment, um, I think if we if we add Asia to to the mix that you just mentioned, then things become even more complicated. And um, the the answer of what is what is was the dictator novel doing right now, uh, or you know in the last let's say eight years, nine years, um, it, it's even harder to pin down. And definitely, it's in my opinion, and I support yours that um, there's no clear. Um, one answer i think everything comes from multiple sides and multiple points of analysis that can elucidate maybe or a point towards a a transition that is way more um uh, tiered i guess it has multiple tiers um than what we would want as one answer and you know to to have it clear and then just uh, just move on i think things are definitely more intricate and with the pandemic too um that has complicated uh, politics and writing and and life in general, I think. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think really the thing to say is that the, the, the literary figure of the dictator might not be the best way to think about our sort of present political challenges. Right. Yeah. Um, that in fact, the thinking about the kind of challenges of the present and the challenges that lie before us, very big and capacious us just there, mm-hmm. um, are probably are indeed happening in other genres in the registers of genre fiction or via via other tropes that are not the figure of the dictator, which I think is a kind of falling back on something familiar as a way of avoiding about talking about the kind of the new and the scary. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about right, Trevor Noah and, and others who, who have talked about, um, you know, the United States and made comparisons uh, with, with other countries and, and continents, it feels like it's a it's a moment of recognition that doesn't allow for critique in a way that is very productive, um, which you know I think it might be a way to um, get back at and to to kind of reassess in a way. But I think that that is just a, a very nice uh, a transition towards uh, the afterward and moving outward and forward. And you you started to, to talk about this, but you know, I still wanted to pose the question <laughs> um, to say that uh, even through the title, um, the afterword creates the opportunity to ask about how your work evolved from and was informed by the first book project. So looking back uh, at the book, how did the method and the case studies transform their initial reach through your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... You know, um, the time of the percolation of ideas and kind of academic publishing circuits is very long. And so I'm still seeing the ways in which the book is moving and thinking about also how I am moving as a scholar. I will say the sort of spirit of the afterward was very much a kind of um, a giving over of the arguments of the book and the sort of hope that other scholars will take it up and kind of expand the breadth of arguments to other contexts in the global South. I see the afterward as very much um, an invitation. And so that the titular 
moving outward and forward is kind of about the book leaving me um, in that sense, um, more so than me moving outward and forward with the book, right? Although I am indeed moving outward and forward myself as a scholar. Um, and so in looking at the sort of preview I had of this question, right, how did the method and case studies transform? Um, you know, I think I was struck in rereading the book in advance of this conversation, the ways in which, you know, at its core, my kind of um, concern with South-South comparison, Latin America and Africa specifically, South-South more broadly, has really been a kind of defining I'll repeat myself, has been a defining concern um, for me in the years since finishing the book. And as I've been articulating, you know, specific book projects, but also a broader research program. And it's not just that I want to be talking about cultural production from Latin America and cultural production from Africa together. It's the kind of methodological challenges raised by that, right? It's not the fact that I want to be thinking about them together, but the kind of ideas that arise from having a foot in each of those spaces and those sort of scholarly communities, the ideas that arise from that. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking directly and indirectly about the challenges in a fruitful sense um, as well, of South-South comparison. And this has been through a series of venues. I mean, I've done a lot of work in sort of in the field and building the field of global South studies in the context of the US. I'm a co-director of the digital platform, Global South Studies, for example. I've been having these conversations for many years. I've done special issues and so forth. So South-South comparison there. But in my own scholarship, there were two pieces I wrote after the book that were finite projects. And yet for me, very much a kind of my own moving outward and forward uh, from the project of the book. And so um, these were two invited contributions to edited collections or handbooks. Um, uh, and so they came with titles. So the first was a chapter on Garcia Marquez and the Global South for uh, the Oxford Handbook of Garcia Marquez. And the other was a chapter on Kutsia and Latin America for um, the Bloomsbury Handbook to Jane Kutsia, which I might have gotten that title a little bit wrong, for which I'm very embarrassed. Um, Okay. But those were two, <laughs> those were two um, invitations, right? That were asking me to think um, about, well, in the case of Jam Kutsia, about Latin America and Africa, but were asking me to think in a way to keep going in terms of the sort of trajectory opened by the publication of this book. Mm-hmm. And they were immensely instructive projects because they were a chance to do a kind of deep dive on the one hand on Garcia Marquez and on the other on J.M. Kutsia. Um, and what each of those essays are in the end, part of how they're structured, is there a series, the central question for each is how do we think about the work of this writer as linked to other contexts? In the case of Garcia Marquez, it's a little bit broader. In the case of, of, of Kutsia, it's a little bit more direct. And part of the kind of conceptual structure of those essays is I try out different ways to think those connections, right? So here's a biographical move. Here's like a political, a move that's informed by political economy. Here is a move that's informed by um, the particular circulations of the works of, of the, of the work of this writer. Um, and in each of them, right, that kind of testing out of different ways to think comparatively adds up to a kind of 
I mean, I've hardly articulated in this way, and it's going to come out in this way in the context of this recording because the adrenaline is up, right? A kind of treatise on South-South comparison that I've been generating indirectly through these projects. Um, And so that the methodological questions, you know, that I had to grapple with in the writing of this particular book on the dictator novel continue to be absolutely vital to my work as a scholar, even when I'm not trying to cross the Atlantic all the time or not trying to cross the Southern Atlantic all the time as well. Right. Right, right. And it's so so important to, to talk about how these finite projects that, you know, come with a title, come with a direction sometimes, um, or, you know, have a context specific where you, you integrate your work into, in a way, how they they continue or ask you to continue thinking about um, your own work, but also ways that maybe have not been mentioned or the book could not, the book manuscript in general, could not have accommodated, but they exist and they they must be said. But so I think it both talks about the, the critical work, the scholarship, as well as the relationship as scholars we have with these projects and how, you know, the, the work of adding or taking out or, you know, adjusting for a particular um context, whether that's the book, whether that's, you know, a chapter, whether it's an article, um, are so interconnected, but also so formulaic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think something that I'm aware of at this stage in my career, um, you know, it's going to come out a little bit silly. The first time was is that I really care about how this kind of comparative work is done. Um, and therefore that I care about the broader discipline of comparative literature and the kinds of things and the kinds of thinking that it makes possible with full acknowledgement that the particular regions of the world, let alone thinking across the particular regions of the world that I'm interested in, have long been marginalized in that discipline. Um, it's not simply about validating about establishing these as valid sort of zones of inquiry or in a valid axis of inquiry within the broader scope of comparative literature. But that to actually do that work means thinking critically about comparison in ways that were certainly not the mainstream in the version and in the corner of the discipline in which I was trained, for example. Um, and so it's informing my work as a scholar, but of course, like the, what I'm doing in my own research is only one part of what you do in terms of the editing, advising, teaching, and so forth. Sure. But I mean, I absolutely agree with this. And I would add the fact that the the work, the, this little part of, of our broader work, it's so informative to mm-hmm. the other types of work that we do, whether, you know, that's advising or mentoring or grant proposals or, you know, mm. all, all sorts of yes. And it's reflected in the teaching. It's reflected in the, the the type of methodology that we wish to impart to our students as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, students up and down. You know, not just in the training, not just in advising someone working on a dissertation, not just in graduate seminars, but also just how you put together and present information to students in a general education class. Um, right. th- those those sort of values, um, for lack of maybe. To just to use that term for now, sort of really are up and down the chain in terms of you know how we present um, literature and cultural production more broadly um, to students and, and to broader audiences too. For sure, and you know we have taken 
a lot of your time and I'm very grateful for it. And I have one last question about the, the projects you are working on right now, the directions you, you see um, your work going into, um, you know, anything that you could share with us would be would be great. Absolutely. Well, I've talked about my um, apparently nascent treatise on South-South comparison <laughs> that I've been writing. Um, I've worked on a series of different projects. I've been very interested in genre fiction specifically, or m- more specifically in, in, in contemporary um, African writing. But what I'm working on more specifically at the moment is a project that I'm going to describe in a very conventional way, which is it's a project about the ways in which the Latin American literary boom of the 1960s and 1970s becomes a model for the um, sort of international circulation of literature from elsewhere in the global south in the last 50, 60 years. So that's a very conventional description. It's, um, in that sense, it would be a literary historical project, a project that moves in the direction of literary sociology, thinking about the institutions that have been mediators. I've spent some time in the archives of the organization formerly known as the Congress for Cultural Freedom. Um, I spent time thinking about spaces like the Iowa International Writers Program and so forth that are also key sites for the kind of internationalization of writing from the former post-colonial and and, and really uh, from the former post-colonial world in the global south more broadly. But I'm still in the process of this project of essentially figuring out (laughs) what are the many directions that the electricity can flow in to go to an earlier metaphor. So um, that kind of narrative pieces of that story already exist. There's a fuller and more detailed and I think more critical story to be told. Um, We've seen a kind of successive impulse toward declaring booms, whether it's the boom of the Latin American novel, the post-colonial novel, the South Asian novel, the African novel uh, more recently, or a new boom of Latin American women writers most recently. That sequential narrative is interesting, and I'm, I'm still figuring out exactly essentially where that kind of reading back against the grain is, is going to happen, because I think those um, literary historical, literary critical, and, and also literary sociolog- sociological relations are deeply important. Um, but I, I, ha- I, I think, and so here the kind of nakedness of, of admitting that Currently, there are pieces, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that spark. Um, but I, I think there's something more there than just what could be flattened into a narrative of influence. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm not going to say anything more because I'm, I'm figuring it out. But I think, in the same way that that the dictator novel project was really about that kind of letting the current run in one direction, switching it back, and seeing what it opened up. I'm, I'm in that point now with this project. It sounds extremely productive and exciting to see where things go and to 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 think about the multiple um, directions. Um, since you already have the experience of of the first manuscript and also the the projects afterwards, and to to be in this um, network of of ideas mm-hmm. and to see how they they connect and what are the points of of intersection, I would say. I mean, I'm happy to hear your description of it because as I was talking, I started to picture myself as Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> no. <laughs> kind of putting the parts of the body together and hoping, it'll, <laughs> waiting for the lightning to strike, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, when you were talking, I had a more, I don't know how to call it, but, you know, a different vision. And that was of a, <laughs> of a network of ideas. 
<laughs> Thank you. I will. I won't be borrowing that vision. <laughs> it's much more encouraging, or far less gothic. You know. But I, you know, if you if you like the Frankenstein metaphor, <laughs> I support it. <laughs> Some part of me does, but I suspect I, I I I I don't think that's the richest way to think about about writing and the generation of ideas. And also, Frankenstein ends badly. Yeah, you know, and I, I, <laughs> I really see the 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 way you described your work as going into a very interesting generative and you know enthusiasm enthusiasm producing way. <laughs> um, but you know, thank you very much, Dr. Armia Cicera, for talking to us today, and I really look forward to interview you again here uh, with a new project. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. The questions were wonderful. And it was so lovely to have this opportunity to reflect on the book with, with, with the distance of the last few years, which have been eventful ones. Um, this is really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>